Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Kieran Klaus Patel, author of Project Europe, a History, published in April by Cambridge University Press. Published in English, that is. This book is That Rare Beast, a recent post-war European political history translated from another language, in this case German. This is because after its publication in 2018 by C.H. Beck, the book made waves inside and outside German scholarship, and a clue to its crossover appeal can be found in its original title, Project Europe, A Critical History. In his book, Professor Patel rethinks the development of the European communities and the European Union from first principles. He tells us in broad strokes that one, the communities represented one model among many other post-war associations, but survived by proving themselves the fittest. Two, They benefited from peace more than they contributed to it. And three, disintegration and dysfunctionality were hardwired into their evolution. Basically, what didn't kill them made them stronger so far. Kieran Klaus-Patel currently holds the Chair of European History at Ludwig Maximilian University, Munich. From 2011 to 2019, he was a professor at Maastricht University and at the European University Institute in Florence. His revisionist, The New Deal, A Global History, was co-winner of the 2017 World History Association Jerry Bentley Book Prize. Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Tim. Um, could you begin by setting out, I mean, I gave a potted uh, version there, but could you begin by setting out the core argument of the book and why you decided to write it and when you decided to write it before we dig into some of the detail? Yeah, very good questions. I I probably don't quite know when I started to think about this book, probably early on when I was still working on other projects that had to do with the history of the EU, and when I felt that something was missing. I think what we have had over the past 20, 30 years was an enormous amount of history, writing, and of course, many contributions from other fields that were dealing with the politics of European integration, whereas I felt that many people would be slightly more interested in the effects of European integration. So what did all these treaties and negotiations and details and regulations lead to? How did they impact people's lives? And that was the issue that I tried to address in this book. This is what the book is about. And I think it helps us to move to a slightly more realistic and balanced view of the history of European integration beyond what we often have, the polemics either being full of praise that this is the ultimate source of peace on the one hand, or again, the catastrophe, the demise of national sovereignty and the kind of the source of all problems on the other hand. I started writing the book in 2015 proper, um, again, the German version, and it was great because I started doing so when in London. So um, again, a very obviously interesting moment prior to Brexit, but when discussions also about the Scottish referendum were um, ongoing and where, again, it was very helpful for me 
to look at these issues um, in, a in a different national context than I'm normally living in or that I was living in at the time, because at the time I was working in the Netherlands while living in Germany. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, as I mentioned, that you you make you make a very interesting point, um, which, which is that we've had exits before. We had the exit of Algeria in 1962 and the exit of Greenland in in 1982. Um, and you you make the point that these are these are different from a sovereign state leaving, as opposed to attachments to countries that already came in. But but it did mean that, uh, as you put it, this disintegration or dysfunctionality was already built into the system. Very much so. And I have to say that again, having kind of worked on the history of European integration for quite some time already, I was surprised that I was quite unaware of these two events until I started doing research on them. So one of the interesting dimensions there, I think, is that in the standard accounts of integration history, if there is something of this kind, again, these cases of disintegration have often been marginalized and not are being referred to very often. It also took some real archival research to dig up the details and find out how they mattered and why I think they need to be added to the story. Again, for this very big fundamental point to argue that it is wrong to say what we have been hearing very often so far, that until Brexit, European integration only knew two directions that was deepening and widening. What we see, if you look closer, is again, that there were these instances before when countries, again, not fully sovereign member states that had been member states um, full-fledged before, but countries were leaving this process. And again, at the more detailed level, what we also see once we start looking into these two cases, again, Algeria in the 1960s, Greenland in the 1980s, is how difficult it was for them to really cut off their links with what was then the European communities. And that, um, to cut a long story short, there was not one moment when the relationship really changed fundamentally and for a long time then. But that what we had there was that it was then constantly renegotiated and moved into several, several directions, again, from being closer to further away. And I would argue that what we've seen since the referendum, since 2016 with the United Kingdom, is a rather similar story. Again, while we speak um, on the 30th of November, um, it is not quite clear how things will evolve and what the future will bring with the relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. But we do know quite clearly that what David Cameron has promised, that he wanted to solve the question once and for all with the referendum, has certainly not taken place. Because what we've seen is four very difficult and thorny years of discussions, of negotiations, with many twists and turns, where it is clear that this was already a very, very difficult process, which is, again, the very opposite of a clear-cut decision once and for all. Yes, and you you uh, you use that nice... Um term from German football, nach dem Spiel ist vor dem Spiel, after the game is before the game. Right. Uh, in other words, uh, once one game is over, you start preparing for the next one. Uh, and you say um, uh, everyone's focused on the terms of the, of, the, of, the, of the deal at the moment, but, quote, that is unlikely to be crucial for the relationship in 20 or 30 years' time. Um, coming back to your comparison there with Algeria and Greenland, I, it, it was really fascinating where you talk about how Algeria found itself at the mercy of disputes between member states. 
and the also the comparison with with Greenland, where it was a I believe a fifty two forty eight referendum, um, and they ended up as you say with uh, it today green eighty five percent of Greenland's imports uh, go to the EU, and sixty five of its sixty five percent of exports are with the EU. Is I guess do you is your does your gut tell you that the UK will end up in a very close relationship over time and will be surprised at how locked into this uh, relationship it, it will remain. Again, historians have always been particularly bad at predicting the future, so I'm slightly reluctant to to come up with a very clear idea of what the future will bring. I think, again, what we've seen already over the past four years was, again, that relationship has been zigzagging and, again, ideas have been going into very different directions of how the future relations should look, also from the British side. And I think, again, what we see is in these two historical instances that it took a lot of thinking about this and, again, new historical context to then see how the relationship would evolve. Um, I would want to mention that on the one hand, of course, the United Kingdom is a very different country than the two that, um, again, I did my research on, because, of course, it is it became part of the European communities as a sovereign member state. And it is, of course, in many ways, economically, politically, also in military terms, much more powerful. Um, but also that the European Union is a very different creature to the one of the 1960s or the 1980s, for that matter, because European integration has gone so much deeper, um, particularly since the Maastricht Treaty and also slightly less well-known reforms in the 19, second half of the 1980s. So in that sense, I think that also political class and administration in the United Kingdom only now start to fully realise how legally complex and what a big bureaucratic effort it is to really um, cut off all these links to the European Union. And I would therefore think that there is a high likelihood that in many ways um, these links will become um, closer again in the next, again, decades. I'm not talking about the next five years. So this is a more long-term historical perspective. Um, it, of course, very much depends on how the international world will evolve uh, more generally. And had the US election um, last or this month ended differently with President Trump uh, clearly winning the election, of course, also that would have been a major factor impacting the relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. But also, of course, with um, Joe Biden becoming the US president, I think there is a clear incentive for the United Kingdom to, again, move slightly closer to the European Union for many, many different reasons. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning of the book. Um, uh, and your, as I mentioned in the int introduction, your argument that um, the communities essentially were, were one of many associations and, and any one of these potentially could have ended up being the, the dominant agency. You explain why the communities came out on top, but could you expand on that? How Could you run through the argument that you make in the book there? Very happy to. And let me maybe first say that what I also find a problem in the literature that we often project back today's situation to the early post-war period. So today we have a situation in which the European Union does make a difference. You might like it, you might hate it, but I think it's difficult to argue that it doesn't really impact um, the economic fabric, but also social and other dimensions in the member states and even beyond. 
And again, the point is that we have a lot of research that argues there is two things. There is either national sovereignty, full-fledged, or there is the European Union. And if we look back into the early post-war period, what we see is a whole kind of host of different organizations that were all talking about European integration and cooperation, one kind or the other. Think of the Council of Europe, an international organization in its own right until today, the OECD or OEC as its predecessor coming out of the Marshall Plan. And I could add a long list of other acronyms to this to the short list already um, of organizations that were going into somewhat similar directions of trying to create a new international situation and solution for Europe, often again considered in a transatlantic context and forum. Now, I argue in the book that therefore we should look at this process of the EU becoming the foremost organization of this kind as something that is not obvious, that wasn't a given, that was only the result of history and several factors that I try to discover and kind of discern in, in the book. And I argue that it's mainly three factors that made the European communities at the time predecessor of today's EU stand out. Firstly, that it was much more focused on economic matters than some of the other organizations. Um, again, the common market, and again, it is interesting that for many people in the United Kingdom, um, it for a long time was only seen as the common market. And what should only be the common market, but there were also these other things, the Eurotome community and the coal and steel community that were created even before at the same time as the common market. But still, it was the common market that became dominant amongst the three organizations within the European communities. And again, the logic of the common market was to see, if you will, the world through economic eyes. So you could either kind of integrate the market further or you might want to create exceptions, for instance, for cultural artifacts that they would not fall under the logic of the market. Now, if you take this as a logic, as a starting point of how you see the world, then I think it becomes comparably easy to argue that once you do, um, again, a common market, you need to create exceptions also for other things. You should, for instance, also make sure that environmental concerns, once this, this issue comes up, are being taken into consideration or the situation on the work floor with uh, work security and so on. So what we see over time is not an automatic spillover of um, a focus in on the common market to other policy fields, such as environmental policy, um, hygiene and health policy and so on. But what we do see is that actors in the European communities time and again pushed for such spillovers and time and again, not always, were successful in making them happen. And that is one important factor why the European communities became so much more important than other organizations. Take, for instance, the Council of Europe, which, if you will, was dealing with much more important policy fields um, from its um, beginnings in the 1940s. For instance, it was in charge of human rights affairs. But there, the reluctance of member states to accept the um, council to play a strong role was even bigger. And again, because the issue was so politically charged, human rights, it was much more difficult to then expand powers into other policy fields than if you were dealing with something that looked rather mundane and rather technical, such as the common market. 
The second argument that I make is that it had to do with money, money matters, if you will, and that the European community, for very complex reasons, once you start looking into the detail, had its own budget and a bigger budget in comparison to organizations such as the Council of Europe or the OECD. And with that money, it was able to, again, push for new powers and new policy fields. Let me give you one example that is rather marginal until today, but there is particularly easy to see how this works. Again, the Council of Europe since the 1940s was in charge of cultural issues, cultural affairs, cultural policies, and organized exhibitions, for instance, across Europe. Now, the European communities had no such powers in the beginning, but it had money. And once you had in the 1970s, for instance, a discussion about the conservation of European cities and what should be done about the architectural heritage, you had also actors in the European communities pushing for new powers for the EC in this field. And again, since it had money and means and an interest in this field, it was able to also enter this kind of policy field informally first. And then only afterwards, um, this was also turned into something um, in the treaties. And that brings me directly to my third point, and that is law, EU law. Um, We tend to know that the EU is a different beast to these other organizations because, again, of its supranational dimensions, i.e. that, um, to put it into a nutshell, EU law can break national law much more easily than is the case in what you have as standard international organizations, where it is much more that power resides, again, with the member states. Now, what you have in many conversations on all kinds of policy issues during the Cold War period and also today is that member states were thinking that certain fields need to be coordinated further, that there was a policy need at an international level. And what you then often had is what I would want to call venue shopping, that they were discussing this both at the Council of Europe as well as the OECD, but also at the EC, and then trying to see where it kind of made most sense to move forward. And what you had, again, is a much more binding character of EU law in comparison to the law of these other organizations. And time and again, this also turned into a vital source for the EU then becoming more powerful in that respective policy field, wherever it was, Um, be it monetary policy, be it environmental policy or many other fields. So again, this is a complex process. I want to underline that this was not clear from the beginning. There was no master plan or big intention, but rather it really takes an analysis of history to bring out um, this as a long-term process where by looking back, we can see the various moments where this started to kick in. And why I would want to argue that is particularly since the 1970s, that the European communities then became another organization of a beast of different kind in comparison to, again, say, the Council of Europe or the OECD. Added to that, you you make a couple of other nice points that that NATO, the Bretton Woods institutions and the Council of Europe essentially cocooned the communities by taking away core responsibilities on on defence, economic policy, and as as you said earlier, on, on cultural matters and on norms, and that that allowed communities to develop gradually. But you make this other point about the fact that unusually compared, for example, to the OECD or NATO or the UN, that the EU, sorry, the European communities very quickly 
developed um, a sort of uh, civil service cadre with institutional knowledge and personnel, Um, you know, people like Paul-Henri Spark and Jean Monnet, but people even lower down, which meant that you had this this sort of institutional loyalty and solidarity that developed very quickly and and, and gave them a a esprit de corps that the other agencies perhaps didn't have. Yes, very much so. It is interesting to look at these uh, kind of the first generation of uh, actors, politicians who built these institutions. Again, Paul-Henri Spark, this Belgian politician is particularly interesting because he was a top politician at the Belgian national level already in, in the interwar years. And he played a very important role in a whole host of international forums post-45, both, for instance, as General Secretary of NATO, as well as in high roles in the United Nations General Assembly, and also in the coal and steel community. So he would be, for me, the perfect example of an actor of this first post-war generation who had his fingers in all these different pies and was trying to see which of them probably was most um, successful and had the highest potential. But what you said is also very true that, particularly at the slightly lower level, those bureaucrats who then went into the institution, there was a different form of allegiance that was built in the European communities because um, there was a slightly more stable career. And again, there was this institutional growth for the three reasons that I outlined that also made it slightly more attractive to be involved in this organization. If you read, for instance, correspondences of the General Secretary of the Council of Europe of the 1970s, all he basically does is to be frustrated and to complain about the lack of funds that he has for all the fantastic organization ideas that his organization has, but the member states are just not willing to, to put more money into, into that budget. Um, whereas, again, what you have in the European community is a dynamic growth that also makes it attractive for politicians, for junior bureaucrats of national administrations to join that club and to invest their future in, in it. And again, if you will, there is a self um, kind of um, fulfilling mechanism and um, a kind of a cumulative process by which this organization also becomes more important because it is successful and success feeds success there. Yeah. What, what's quite funny, though, also, I, I think it's in your chapter on the super state or super state or tool of nations, where you you point out that that the community communities develop powers that it didn't seem to realize it had at the time. So, for example, the first competition commissioner, no, nobody wanted the job because they thought it was not that important, and it ended up being an absolute core competence. But also the where, where you talk about the uh, the Cassis de Dijon ruling in 1979, and then the the passage of Article 100A, um, uh, which allowed, you know, the, the people thought of, the, the ministers thought at the time wasn't that important. It turned out to be absolutely crucially important in, in the development of the communities. Absolutely. As you say, I think, again, I try to not write this in the dullest and most boring way, which would be particularly easy on all these technicalities. Whoever thought about the single European Act and Article 100A? But the point is that the devil is in the detail there. And again, that some of these new forms of EU law opened the door to then massively expand the remit of European integration. 
I, I argue that national politicians weren't always aware of that and that often you had actors in the European community, in European Parliament and other EU institutions or EC institutions at the time that very much pushed to really um, read these new um, forms of EU law in a way that could be also used to activate the process further and to push integration further. So sometimes they were really going to the limits of what legally was possible. One very obvious and um, easy to explain example is the European Parliament. Again, when this organization was set up with the coal and steel community of 1952 and expanded with the Treaties of Rome of 1957, it wasn't called the European Parliament. It was the Parliamentary Assembly. And that difference in it was important because it was not meant to have all the powers of a real parliament. But actors in the parliament just started calling it a parliament, the European Parliament, from day one onwards, basically. And also the official documents from the parliament were called, again, EP documents um, when they came from the organization. And it took until the 1980s, until the other organizations or other um, institutions within the European communities accepted that idea. So the idea to very dynamically and sometimes also in a rather, you know, legally slightly problematic way, if you will, push for further integration has characterized this process. And if we try to think about the sources of Brexit, there are many, obviously. But I think one of them that also this book tries to emphasize is that you had very complex processes, particularly in the 1970s and 80s, hidden away from public discussion. And again, where there was a lack of understanding of what was really going on at the European level, lack of translation also into national public discourses. And once you move into the 1990s and 2000s, many people were starting to wonder, hey, when did we actually decide all this? Where did this all come from? What, how did this happen? And this is basically what the book tries to explain to its readers. So I'm not trying to take sides and easily say this was all fantastic or this was all problematic. I'm trying to understand and analyze the dynamics. And again, there it is, for instance, also interesting that Margaret Thatcher, as, um, as prime minister, was very much pushing for further integration of the, the market, again, from the common to the single market, so that also the British were very much involved in this and also had their fair share in pushing for a further integration, at least in some policy fields. And again, I think we need to understand that complexity also to take good decisions on what to do next in this whole field of European politics. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a very pragmatic argument. I, I, I don't think you would know until you really got to the very end of the book where what your position was, uh, which, is, which is a compliment. Um, the, the chapter on values and norms is really interesting and really appropriate to to the current uh, debate over Hungary and, and Poland. Uh, you know, and you talk about how there was this discussion. There's always been a discussion about whether it should be a community of values or a normative power. But what was very interesting to me was that I, I didn't know the story of the interest of, of Franco Spain in, in, in coming into the communities and the fact that that, as you say, Paris and Bonn were, were pretty open to it and didn't really raise ethical questions. And the, 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 the only two people did raise that. That was the Dutch. So that's just like today with Hungary and, and Poland. And the other was the European Parliament, which was, and I, I'd like you to expand on this, actually. Do you think, do you think the Parliament 
had a focus on this because it was more susceptible to lobbying by by NGOs. So it, it's a uh, it, it's it's a lobbying issue more than the fact that the European Parliament, Parliament perhaps cares more about uh, uh, norms and values. Great question. I again just to go a little bit into the details for people who haven't read the book. Again, this is the early 1960s, and this is Franco's Spain dictatorship trying to create closer relations with the European communities. And what you then have once you start looking into the diplomatic documents in both Paris and Bonn at the time as Germany's capital is, well, quite some openness. And then it took these discussions, particularly um, in European Parliament, with a famous report, uh, so-called Birkelbach report, um, named after a German um, MEP, that argued, hang on, we can't do this. Again, we have certain norms and values. And again, if we look at that and respect those, we can't, again, forge these gross relations or maybe even accept Spain as a full member state in the European communities. Um, again, there were national actors who were reluctant, such as the Dutch. I think, again, the European Parliament, which, again, wasn't even called Parliament at the time and had very little formal powers on these issues, and that also makes it very interesting, was vital to explain why the European Union or community at the time moved closer to what it always pretended to be, and that is a community of values that really has values that are legally enshrined and to which it also has to look before it takes certain kinds of decisions. Now, I don't think so much, to be honest, that it was an effect of lobbying that, again, the parliament came out with these positions at the time, because also human rights lobbying in the 1960s wasn't very strong in many member states and in Europe. Um, what we have is a process, particularly since the 1970s, that human rights have become a, a international political point and reference um, that really impacts policymaking much more. I think, and also looking at some of the actors in Parliament, uh, what you see is that it was people who were thinking about their own lives. And again, some of these people had been, again, victims um, of Nazi aggression, again, as German Social Democrats, for instance, but obviously also very much from other, other member states and have felt that, again, it would simply be wrong to, again, let a dictatorship into this community. So I think it was more in that period of time in the 1960s, their own experience and also a certain opposition, because this was slightly more a social democratic project of the time to insist on the values, a certain resistance against the more Christian democratic, if you will, also realpolitik um, orientation that the communities were taking in many, many ways. Um, so I think that was the starting point. But of course, also in more recent period, NGOs, INGOs have played a very important role also to insist on these points. And my overall argument is that in many, particularly continental European discussions today, um, you have this um, kind of narrative whereby today with Hungary and Poland, you have for the first time a real challenge to the idea of the EU as a community of value, whereas so far it's always been easy and happy, if you will. And my argument is that the story is much more complicated and that it took the European Union an awful long time to really make sure that it stands for values, both within as well as in its relations to other countries, so that the basis on which discussions that we have today with Poland or Hungary, uh, for instance, are less firm than we often think. 
And uh, that, again, is also where I think history can come into the conversation by just making us see where we stand and where also this, well, fragile basis when it comes to values actually comes from and that it has its very specific history. I mean, you you said before that uh, historians are reluctant to look into the future, but you have this quote at the end of the book where you say the EU of our time is not only systematically more relevant than ever before, it is more vulnerable to fundamental crisis. What what makes you say that? I think, again, that um, the EU is a very different creature to what it, uh, the EC was in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, you were kind enough to already refer to a metaphor that I use in the book, that there was this cocoon of other international organizations, of NATO, of the transatlantic link, and again, this whole host of other organizations in the early period that also protected the communities and helped it to concentrate on rather technical mundane issues in the beginning. What you have, particularly since the second half of the 1980s, is the European communities and then the European Union after Maastricht becoming in charge of really very, very important things, such as, again, the market becoming much more important. You have the Eurozone as a separate project, but still very closely linked to the European Union and so on. So I would argue that, um, again, the European community of the 1970s was not having a fundamental systemic impact on the fate of economies and societies as it has today. So in that sense, it has simply become much more important. That's that's part of the argument. And the other point is that what you also have, and that is more than anything else, a result of history, a form of integration that often remains incomplete. So if you would want to get the euro right and really robust, um, also to weather future economic storms, you would have to move integration much further. And that hasn't happened because there was no consensus amongst member states to do so in the 1990s when the euro was created. What you then had with the eurozone crisis since 2009, um, again, there is a nice French word, bricolage, kind of just to fix little things here and there. No fundamental reform, but certainly a deepening of integration there. And I think what we've seen over the past 10 years or so was a multiplicity of crises against Brexit, um, migration, climate, um, new populism, uh, many others could be mentioned there. And again, so far, the European Union has managed to keep each of these crises separate from each other and deal with them um, separately. And that is the reason, I think, why it has weathered the storm, particularly over the past 10 years, comparably well. Again, this is not a normative statement that European Union is good, but simply that if you look at the challenges, it is actually quite interesting that it does still exist and that integration has gained further depth, if you will. Again, there are new powers that Brussels now has in comparison to 15 years ago when it comes to to the euro, for instance. And um, that, I think, is the first point that we need to note. The second is, again, that due to its new relevance, it is also slightly more likely, again, to fall victim to a fundamental crisis. Again, I would see two sources of fundamental crisis for the European Union. One has to do with the euro. If there was a new and even deeper challenge to the um, euro than we've seen since 2009, 
Or again, what I started to explain already, if there was something that you could call accumulation of different crises. Mm-hmm. Again, so far with Brexit, for instance, this has remained comparably separate from the other crises the EU was, was uh, having to face, for instance, the migration crisis. Now, if all these crises were feeding into each other, that I think could lead to a fundamental crisis and maybe even a demise of the EU as we know it. Mm-hmm. Well, um You've published two revisionist histories in the last uh, five years. Do, do you have another one on the go? Um, I don't know if this is going to be so revisionist. What I'm doing at the moment is to write what I haven't covered in the book that we're discussing today. So I'm writing a comparably short book that really tries to tell the history of the integration process and then the European Union from its beginnings until today. Um, the book that we're discussing in this format today um, is very much focusing on the Cold War period and basically ends with Maastricht. And um, there is good reasons to do so, but I felt that I owe my readers and maybe myself and trying to get my head around the more recent period. So this is what I'm doing at the moment. I'm just writing basically as we speak about the past five years, which is a particular challenge for a historian, obviously, but also great fun to take distance from things that we all have experienced and know and try to think them in a slightly more long-term perspective. Interesting. And And when is that due to come out? If only I knew. Again, I hope that the German version, again, this is a book I'm first going to publish in German, will be out next year. And then there will be an English version that will take slightly longer. Right. Okay. Well, look forward to that. Um, And finally, since this is a podcast about books, can you recommend a book or books in this field or something you've read recently or indeed something entirely outside this world that has special meaning to you? Um. I thought about this, and again, there would be millions of books by colleagues whom I very much appreciate and who've written about related issues, but I thought it might be nicer to to bring us something else. Um, There is a book by an Austrian author by the name of Robert Menasse, Robert Menasse, um, which is called The Capital. came out in English in 2019, in German in 2017. Some have argued it's the real the first novel about the European Union. Um, It takes place in Brussels. It talks about all these bureaucrats and lobbyists and so on. It is, and that I think is quite important about it. It is satirical fiction. It's about the daily lives and it's ironic and funny and witty. So all the things people do not tend to associate with European integration. And it is for this reason that I would like to mention it. Again, it's not the first book of this kind. Um, Some listeners might be aware of Stanley Johnson's, again, the father of famous other Johnson's book, The Commissioner, which is similar in genre, but this is the more updated version written some 20 years later and might be fun for people who still, you know, take a certain interest in the European Union and are not completely fed up with the whole topic, which I would also understand. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, today, uh, Kieran Klaus-Patel and I have been discussing his Project Europe, a history published in April by Cambridge University Press. Kieran, thanks again for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, Tim.